I still feel not as excited as I thought I would. <laughs> yeah, even the finals are finished. Yeah, even the finals are finished, you know. That's weird. Well, I think that the feeling should take some time to kick in. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. So how long how long have you been uh going to this college? Um I've been going to this college for a year now. Okay. Yeah, but I started visiting the college for um close to two years now. Or a year and a half, eighteen months, yeah. But I officially started taking classes a year ago. Hmm. So do you feel like after finals normally you feel this way or do you think this is unusual? This is unusual. After finals, I have this um, feeling of fulfillment, feeling of a job well done, feeling of excitement that, oh, yes, you you came, you saw, you conquered, right? But this feeling is a little bit more overwhelming, slightly depressing. Like you came, you you, you conquered, you, you, you put in a lot of effort, you did your best, you, you put up a good game, but somehow you're not just happy about the reality, you know, and the fact that in less than a week, it's going to be another quarter and you're going to keep up with all the assertion. I don't know why. Yeah. but I don't think it. it's less than a week. I think or about a, a week. Yeah. yeah. About one week. Yeah. 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 Hmm. How, so you feel like you should feel better than you do. Yeah. I, I don't like know. I mean, maybe you should feel how you feel. Okay, that's also true. That's also possible. <laughs> like maybe, well, what I'm saying is maybe you could work backwards and say, let me take the assumption that the way that I feel is correct. And then what's the explanation for it being correct? Rather than saying like, based on everything that I can think of, it's incorrect how I feel. You could say, no, 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 no. What I feel is the correct part. And then my explanations are wrong. Well, I'm not even coming up with an explanation for why I'm feeling how I'm feeling. I'm just like narrating the fact that I feel uh, kind of weird, you know, kind of not very, um, I wouldn't use the word not very comfortable, but not very excited or cheerful. Yeah, not too cheerful. Like, But I, I, I could have an explanation for why I feel this way. Um, and based on that explanation, it's very, very okay and um, logical <laughs> <laughs> to feel this way. <laughs> Or probably to even feel worse, you know, pulling, plugging in the factors, you know, responsible for feeling this way. Yeah, but I don't want to go into details. So. Well, in general, there are a lot of factors that are at play whenever we have this experience of feeling one way or another. And most of the time, I feel like unless you're super duper introspective, you're going to be unaware of why you feel that way. You know, I do a lot of introspection. I don't know if super duper, but I do a lot of introspection. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I like doing the backward integration all the time, you know. Yeah. You know, standing outside of, my, outside of myself and evaluating um, the level of progress I'm able to make mm. over a period of time, um, short or medium periods of time, yeah. even long periods of time. I do that assessment, feedback mm. all the time, almost times. Not all the time, once, once, in, uh, once in a while. Speaking of that, let's go into that a little bit. So what do you think uh, is like a good life to live? What What are the elements of a good life? Um, the elements of a good life is work, 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 play, and rest. Hmm. So work three times, play once, rest once. Okay. So it's the ratio. It's the balance. Yeah. Because um, think about it, um, work constitutes um, 
70% of our everyday life, you know. Even mm. the most successful people in the world who have conquered or who think or who might think they've reached their the peak career-wise or financial-wise or power-wise, you know, they literally spend more than 70% of their time on work. Mm. You know, how many days do we spend on uh, holidaying or playing or having leisure? If you put up the hours together in a week and, or in a year, it, it comes down to about 5 or 10%. Yeah. Same with play and all of that, you know. So work, it's very important. And uh, finding the right kind of work that suits into your lifestyle and passion, it's also very good for to maintain that mental balance. And um, also having good reward in terms of remuneration or value for the quality of work you do, it's also going to, in a way, help your mental health because you don't want to accept the most intellectual um, energy and physical energy and mental energy and then you take home close to nothing yeah and maybe a joker or an insincere fellow by just virtue of the coloration of the office or the post or his job rakes in i mean quadrillions amount of money quadrillions yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know and uh well, that we're diverting the talk now to some equitable social equity and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, but that's it. Work, 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 play, and rest. Yeah. I think that um, one of the benefits of doing things that you're really passionate about is that the, the work and play get a little blended. Um, because it, it's possible to do, I think, regular work. Or it includes things that don't really help you play necessarily like it doesn't really give back to you in any way it's just a one-way payment whereas for play you you're still actively doing something but the reward is so great that it almost seems that the whole thing is just a pure reward okay so uh i want to just cut cut in here for a moment um without um without looking at a dictionary or consulting in google what would how would you <laughs> define play yeah, uh, I, I think I'm getting close at the depth, or I think I got pretty close before, which is that it, it, it's, it's the type of activity that is uh, emotionally rewarding for you um, despite the amount of effort that you expel. So it's almost like uh, what you're putting in, what you're getting out is more than what you're putting in, uh, then that's play. But work is kind of what you're putting in uh, doesn't give back as much, so you wouldn't otherwise do it because it's not rewarding enough to do. There's no there's no intrinsic benefit, but it's just something that maybe in the outside world uh, people value. So uh, yeah, I would say it's the ratio of of uh, of how much it's rewarding to you personally versus how much it's costing you personally. But I mean, it's a subjective measurement. So you would also say that um, if you think um, your work is bringing some level, some, you know, enormous amount of intrinsic um, gratification or emotional pleasure, at that point, your work is huge play, right? Yeah, yeah. And also, there's, there's the in-between, too. So the in-between is it's something that you don't want to do, but if you do it, it sets you up in a better position to play. So it's it's still work, but yeah. that work is still different than other work where it doesn't set you up in a, in a better position to play. You're just oh. constantly 
you know, doing something that you don't find rewarding and there's no benefit at all to you other than what you're getting paid, maybe. Man, that's really terrible. <laughs> that should be that should be an adopted definition of slavery, I would argue. Yeah. Um the reduction of um the human to a machine. Right. That's even worse than slavery, I could I could suggest, not argue. Um yeah, because humans are supposed to have that flexibility, that fluidity and uh I also know that repetition, practice, um, structure is very important, but there should be a variation. Right. And uh, I think practice is a good example of one of those in between. So maybe yeah. you love playing basketball, but you hate practice. But you do also see the connection between what you love and that particular type of work. So yeah. it doesn't mean that it's rewarding to it's more rewarding to do it in the actual, like when you're actually doing yeah. the activity, but in the long term or like the, the, the output is going to help you, you know, it's going to enhance you. So even though you hate it, it is, it's still work. That's not the same as, for instance, I don't know, uh, doing dunks for fun because it, it's rewarding, right, to do that move. I can't dunk. I probably can if I tried, but um, it's there still are types of work that are like, Ah, uh, I don't want to do this. But then, th what's the output? The output is you are a better player. That's different than making someone else a better player or making some company an extra dollar, right? So there, there, are, there's a spectrum there. But um, I think it depends on how much it's it's rewarding to you. So, well, who should be, um, who should be the decision maker? So the drivers of thought. Or the leaders of thought, I would say, who get to argue what work is more important than what work and who gets to decide um, what kind of work gets, what kind of pay, you know. And we see this um, spread of demographics that it seems like, um, you know, there is no democracy in the way people get remunerated over the quality of work they do. There are some behind-the-scenes institutional um, power play that decides, you know, what level of work or service gets what level of reward or compensation. Do you think that's fair enough? No, I don't think it's fair. But I, I think I see a little bit of how it came into existence, and I think that might help bring further edits in the future. But it seems like, um, so on one end, you have like a pure market where the 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 ultimate determining factor is how much someone is willing to pay for something. Well, that's the thing. How much someone who has money is willing to pay for something. Um, and then you could, all, you could just look at the basic, like, um, nature of making a profit. So you create some product or service, and there's there are costs associated with that. But then if someone is willing to pay more than whatever that those costs are, then that means it's a viable business because whatever that difference is, that's the profit. Um, so you could say, okay, the human resources could just be considered another one of those resources, just like paper for some product that requires paper. And then you say, okay, well, whatever, if, if there are humans that are willing to be paid this price, if I can buy human service for this amount, then uh, it's just the same equation. But then there's the second layer, which is uh, you have organizations that kind of team together for human rights and say, okay, this is the minimum wage. This is the expectation for this career. You know, um, this if they get this type of degree, they should have some difference in pay than if they got this other degree. 
And um, it seems like if you combine those two, then you get these rough rules. Basically, you have error bars rather than just, you know, the floodgates are open. If somebody's willing to work for one cent, then they're the one who works. Um, but it's not completely subjective, it seems. Yeah. The thing that's, I mean, because when it all, when all the smoke clears, like I said, it seems like, and again, I'm not an economist, but it seems like what's going on is that there has to, at some point, a decision is made, and then once that decision is made, that constrains the future decisions. So if you say, for instance, we're going to drive on the right side of the road, then it makes sense that the people coming in the opposite direction all also drive on their right. Because once one decision is made, then it becomes dangerous. It constrains what the other person can do. Well, the same is true for money, it seems like. If, if one group decides these golden shells are worth something, <laughs> right? then it, if, if that decision is made, this is how we're going to exchange value, then one, if you didn't have gold shells, you're fucked. And two, whatever they spend their gold shells on is going to be inherently more important than whatever everybody else's needs are because they're the orig- they have the most gold shells, so therefore they have the biggest say in the economy that's based off of gold shells. And that's why I say all that to say this, when the smoke clears, it seems to be a difference in values between different groups that determines who says what, uh, some combination of that and what we were saying about the economy before, which is that um, you have the pure market forces, like you know the phenomena of profit, Etc. People willing to work for a certain amount, people willing to pay a certain amount and a profit. But then you also have the phenomena, which seems to be the bigger one, of like, well, who has what is considered money, and who had that at the at the time that that decision was made, and then what follows from that? Same thing as driving on the right side of the road. Well, if this, then all these other things follow, and it's it it's that's where you seem to have a, a huge difference in equity is certain people had the golden shells, and then other people just didn't. So since that was the decision, okay, now we're all going to... You can make the same argument with language. We could decide, okay, now Chinese is the most important language. Well, where does that leave me? That means automatically I have to you know, pay somebody to teach me Chinese. I'm going to be on the bottom of that economy based on people knowing Chinese. Yeah. Or people who are only six feet... And taller, those are the most important people. Okay, well, in that world, all the shorter people right off the bat are going to have to deal with that. And, you know, it just turns out that with money, it's been highly consequential, right? Who who had the gold coins at the beginning and what it takes to catch up. Can you ever catch up to someone who owns, you know, a lot of land, for instance? No. You know what I mean? No. So you, if you were around at the time when they said land is of value and this is how we're going to treat land, and ownership is a thing, then, you you know, it's like, what follows from that? Well, you're going to have more wealth over the long term. Um, but there still are pure market forces, and there still are, it, it still it does seem to be an error bars thing when it comes to, like, individual businesses deciding wages. There, there are pressures. They can't just choose any number. Yeah. But the deeper thing is like, wait, why are we even in this thing? <laughs> <laughs> you, should, you, should, you should keep an eye on um, economics and macroeconomics. You seem to have um, some very good insight into how um, all did some little indices pan out. Um, well, I think, but any of this shit could be wrong. <laughs> this is just what I'm saying from the outside looking in. I'm telling like, you the professionals. coming from? The professionals even struggle with precision. It's a guessing game. 
Yeah. For the most part, you know, even the professors of economies, it's a guessing game. <laughs> it's a, guess. it's a huge, huge. That? It's so sad because <laughs> they don't get punished. They don't get jailed for making economic advice or decisions, you know, that throng an entire population into recession or out of recession. It's always a guessing game, man. There is huge, huge, huge um, gains and losses either way you go, whether you're utilitarian or totalitarian, you know, a classical economist or whatever divides you for. There are people who are going to, like, speak or identify with your school of thoughts, and there are those who will vehemently resist you. At the end of the day, whether you're able to, like, bring certain, you know, benefits to the economy and the general population, um, history will be the best judge. Yeah. But for the most time, it's a guessing game. Um, there were times when the, um, democratic values that might favor... Um, 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 liberal or Keynesian kind of economics might be at play and then you see lots of government and federal spending mm-hmm. and there are also times when the table is flipped around and you have more um, economic policies and they tend towards the classical kind of economics where <laughs> <laughs> you you know you control what needs to be, be controlled and you just let the, the feds um, set some basic principles of cash flows and all of that not favoring government spending but wanting the um, um, the industries or businesses and services to set the pace of the economy. And then that's a challenge to people, but then it doesn't feel pretty good for, <laughs> for, for the stomach and not having so much easy money to spend, but it could bring about powerful products and all of that. So it's always an argument, you know. Yeah. And at the heart of a lot of economics is risk. Yeah. So the the reality is you have to, you have to take risk. Well, this is what it seems like. There are two ways of going about certain things. One is preventing bad things from happening. But another one is making things happen. And it seems like you need to take risk in order to do the second. The first, maybe you could get away with it, but you still kind of already have to be in a good situation for that to work. Okay. But when you want to make something happen, you have to look at it in the face and say, there's some probability that I can fail. And to me, that's at the heart of a lot of economics is like, People have to take risks. Whenever they want to make something happen, they have to just decide, you know what, it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's what investment is. It's basically gambling. You say, well, I think Apple's going to go up in value, so I'll fuck it. I'll put my money into yeah. it. It's yeah. worth it because the gains can be so high yeah. if I'm right that if I'm wrong, what happens? Some broke people suffer. Well, fuck it. I'm going to make my billions. Yeah, I feel you. Okay, um, let's get back to what we have for today we, we, before we exhaust all our time, if we haven't done that already and just <laughs> testing the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no real set plan. It's just whatever comes about. Okay. I didn't know you had a lot of interest in economics, though. You, you study computer science, right? Man, it, it will surprise you about any field you can think of in this world. I have um, close to average knowledge. Uh. in that field if not more because it's just something i i do with my mind i just exercise my mind and just try to think on something think outside something think within something and see how it affects you know the bigger picture i think it's very stupid for anyone to i want to be part of the 21st century um, labor market Mm. i wouldn't want to look at economics yeah because whether you like it or not you're going to pay a huge, huge price for not understanding the power of macroeconomics and how microeconomics affects everyday life. You're going to pay a huge, huge price. You know, someone in Japan who had done his research, had done his market survey, 
and had come up with a particular brand of, you know, automobiles. Yeah. We were paying a huge price if he does not know how the decision of, you know, an American president who favors classical kind of economics and who doesn't favor the Keynesian kind of economics um, will be making decisions in U.S. Um, trade and um, policies, either in using quota system in import or raising the tax cut, you know, to like yeah. pulling some resources as against more government spending, you know, setting the exchange rate and all of that. He will be paying a huge price in building an export-based business when there's going to be a transition from a Keynesian economist to a classical economist. Mm. And then students who want to pursue a particular field and who wants to make this investment in education and take student loans with the hope of working wherever, yeah. who haven't done the macroeconomic big picture for the next 10 to 20 years, if it's not a course like um, nursing that knows no favor or not, when people just get old or fall ill, they just need the services. Then you're yeah. paying a huge, huge price if you don't understand how uh, the forces of, um, of macroeconomics play. Look at what's happening to Facebook in just how many days the stock, they lost close to $80 billion in value. I haven't followed it, but what was the big thing that changed all that? Yeah, because um, 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 investors' confidence would marginally drop based on the um, Cambridge Analytical... Um, do you know any details about that? I know, or just I, I, I don't know details. But I don't know the overview, details, but we had the overview. The overview was that there was this um, software companies that could compromise Facebook accounts oh. and use it to like score an edge. And the fact that Facebook users are uh, opening accounts is based on trust. Yeah, you know that the company is able to um, provide a level of privacy for its users. So if an exterior company could hack into, say, Facebook products and um, steal this user information or not necessarily steal them, mimic them, you know, to pull in lots of data, and, you know, and use it to influence a campaign yeah. on the internet. Yeah. What does that say about investors' confidence? Now the report is out. <laughs> now the report is out. Millennials wouldn't be cool about Facebook products. And if people aren't really using Facebook products, what happens to the stocks? You know, the stocks aren't going to be, like, really viable because software is as good as confidence. Mm. Because if people don't just like it, if people are not there, then it's useless. You can't do ads there. You can't promote it there and all of that. It's different from a cell phone. At least you need to have a tangible hardware. You need to make communication. And so even though some of the apps on your phone are useless, you you pay for those apps that are default apps by buying the phone. Right. You know, for software, it's different. So... Dropping the stocks is trying to, the value of the stocks is trying to give investors who bought those stocks, I mean, give people who want to leave a reason to stay. Mm. Because if the stock is, for instance, if the stock is, say, around $50,000 for each stock and you have a 1,000 stock, yeah. and the company sees a bad news, you know, affecting its image and immediately reduces the value of a stock to $100 for each of them, if you want to sell your stock, would you want to sell? Hmm. You wouldn't want to sell because no, you'd be losing not. money, you know. So it keeps investors there. But some investors will say, we do their own macroeconomic analysis of the damage versus the company's reaction and say, oh, yes, I'm losing. But it's still better to lose now than lose, and, and lose more. And they might still sell. Yeah. You know, and people might want to cash in that, oh, this is Facebook. They're going to fix this in, in, in a matter of 
um, months or years, it's going to like bounce back to 160 and all of that, and they might buy. Right. You know? But sometimes the people who are buying would buy at $100, and then a few days later, it falls again to $70. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not trapped. Hell no, I just lost this amount. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So they do all these things to balance out the volume of um, investors who are leaving and versus those who are buying in and also maintaining the co company's corporate image. So not understanding how economic indices play out or how one big move would mean that. Yeah. It's super risky. Billionaires know they might not win elections all the time. All they need to do is to get politicians on their side because the policy direction will determine the profit or loss of their business, not the 200,000 or the 200 million consumers. Right. At the end of the day, consumers don't have any power. It's the regulators and the policy that are holding the keys to the consumers' bank accounts and pockets. So it's tricky. Consumers have power, but it's unlimited power. For products that you can't do without, you're going to communicate either way. Right. You know. So if you're not going to use at and it's going to be Sprint or something else. Mm. You know. Consumers have, you know, just a power of you know which choice they're to make and all that. Yeah, but, but the they, whole communication they, profile, right? The regulators they, they, they who can't design. No, 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 no. Yeah, so that's a big picture. They just have to pick th from bad designs, basically, uh, to all of that because it's a it's a necessity these days. And why it's important? You can you can macroeconomists are people who should be the number one advisors to government, and and in fact they are. Um, governments all over the world, successful governments, and even the ones who are going to be successful eventually, always have economic think tanks, economic hitmen, you know, at the top of their kitchen cabinet. Yeah. You know, planning decisions and all of that. If you're going to like hold China down or North Korea down, your economic hitmen would really be on top of the game. Mm in driving the strategies you do, both the one that come to the public eye and the one that don't, you know. Economic is very effective. There's also the political one, and then the last resort is usually military. Military. Yeah. But to maintain the balance, it's usually this one. Well, there's also the media campaign and all that, but people Public are smarter. Relations. People are smarter nowadays with propaganda and some of that. But it's still <laughs> very effective, you know, because yeah. when people are emotional, they tend to, like, react very well, and then... The election time is an opportunity to react, you know, emotionally, and then you have four years to pay the price of an emotional acquisition. <laughs> you can't just say, oh, sorry, I made a mistake, leave office. Yeah. No, you have to wait for four years. Right, yeah. <laughs> so it's crazy why people make emotional decisions and wait that long to see the consequences of that. Also, public relations has become better. Propaganda has also become better. People have become smarter, but the techniques have also changed. Changed, yeah. Like you were saying, the fake profile, that's actually very powerful. Yeah. Because there's data that shows Facebook is actually a news source for our generation. Yeah. So people don't go to the New York Times. They don't go they see what their friends shared with yeah. them. And that's how they figure out what the headline news is. So in a sense, yeah, people are kind of hip to propaganda. But in another sense, there's new propaganda that we haven't gotten used to yet. We haven't fully worked all the bugs out. And it's still going to affect. The thing about Facebook is it's super duper targeted. The last generation's propaganda, you know, is a poster on the wall or something like that. Something that you drive by and you see it or something. I don't know. Commercials were big. But now we're talking about streaming. We're talking about, you know, uh, a computer in your pocket. Yeah. And super targeted data is the new 
way that propaganda can spread that that really is quite sneaky. I, I actually disagree. I don't think that we're prepared for it. I assume that I'm being duped every time I look at my fucking phone just, because, just because the propaganda is too advanced. You got to go? No, I, just, I may go by seven. Okay. Oh, I don't yeah. know what time it is. It's like um, um, three, um, six, thirty-six. All right, cool. Yeah. I don't know why they're not. I don't know if they're coming back. I'm assuming that they're coming back. So we don't have any particular structure for this. We're just going to do this all day? Yeah, the structure is... Um, it deals with how we jump between topics. Oh, great. But, awesome. But, but how interesting is that? <laughs> you want to start a radio show or something? <laughs> no, well, I mean, technically I already have, if you know what I'm saying. Okay, cool. But, but it's, it's, you know, it's more about regulating how people are communicating rather than what they're saying. Oh, how nice is that? Yeah. So, um, China. Do, have you ever had thoughts of uh, doing business... I mean, obviously, you're in the United States internationally, but China or uh, Russia or in another country, uh, another big power besides the United States? Because computer science, you could go anywhere, right? Yeah, but no. No? Uh, What's special I, about here? I haven't thought about doing it in China and all of that because I may be wrong, but I believe there is a sophisticated culture of conservation of both religion, tradition, technology, values in some of this country, and it doesn't speak to the DNA of a computer scientist, I would argue. So I seem to be walking in this country intellectually naked mm. by a computer scientist who speaks English. They see me in and out. They see my codes. They see my structure. They see my principle, my pattern, and all of that. And when they crown these things or have access to, you know, little modifications of the shared code or whatever. They could clone it into their own system. They could change it. They could transform it. They could spin it around in different directions. And you can't keep track of what is going on. It's just like just you are Greek, you know, because you don't speak the language. You don't assimilate it well. And even if you do, it's not your country. It's not your culture. It's not your value system. So you're rigged out before you even start. And if the argument is true that it's really software, it's really internet-based, it's really IT, then why should I be in China? Mm. <laughs> yeah, you could be anywhere. You could be anywhere. Well, maybe it's because it's an emerging market or a growing market. Yeah, so what you need in that case, it's you need to see how the economy funnels down, you know, how the structure of the country. And for China, it's slightly predictable. It's, for the most part, a one-party system. For the most part, the government calls the shot, apart from... Cities like Hong Kong that might be experiencing levels of in independence, interdependent. You want to send your, you know, think tanks or um, software lieutenants to like, or even get lobby lobbyists or political salesmen, classical salesmen, to try to get some of these bureaucrats on your side and understand the policy and see the guarantees and look at the legal side. And when you pin, you pin those important indices down, it wouldn't worry so much about what you're doing, you know, everything just falls into place. And I think that's how most of the Apple, um, the software companies have been really successful in these countries. Apple just comes up with, you know, the product they want to make, the design, you know, the value and all of that. And there's very little they're able to control. Mm. At the end of the day, they give it to these guys. These guys have um, the population of people who do very, very little and specific things. The machining of 
every micro component of the electronic device. Right. You know, because they don't use like um, 3D printers or like sophisticated machines to do every single thing. There are machines that do a lot of all that, but there are also people who have the technical no knowledge of some of these little things. And these jobs don't really pay so high here in America, mm. but then in places like China, it doesn't pay high either. But then you have a population, an enormous amount of people yeah. who are skilled in that particular area, and it drives the graph of uh, supply and demand so much in their favor mm. than trying to put out the production here. And then when you do your, your 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 economic analysis, you see, okay, it takes about four hundred dollars to produce the latest iPhone in China, just the materials and all of that, and it's good to go. And then you could sell it for a thousand dollars in the state at retail price. So just by doing factoring in all your production cost, boom, four hundred dollars. You're just making um, six hundred dollars in profit from sales. So at the end of the day, your sales strategists and sales executives will be raking in more than your software engineers. Sales executives at the high level, the highest level, the ones that broker these huge global deals. The software engineers are just trying to build the software that will run on each of these phones and make sure they are running while it's being used and all of that. So of course they have to be paid well because each time you're using the phone, it has to work. Right, you know, but it's still a part of the product. It's not so much a part of the the yeah. human side, the deal making. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tricky. So, but but it has a lot of power. You know, the fact that you could build an app and you could launch it on, you could sell it to any of the phone carriers or launch it on iTunes or iStore or something, and someone could download that app and you get a dollar. Someone who will never know you. Someone who will never know the person who made the app, but we use the app for 20 years. That's amazing. And then you start looking at economics of scale, the population of a country, the people using this technology and all that. That's what has transformed Facebook and the software companies into mm. a crazy big deal. Have you ever thought about uh, being on the business side? Of course, I have always thought about that. That's so what drives you toward being on the engineering side? Because that is a huge weakness is that... Um, there seems to be a peak that you can reach in a company as an engineer, unless you're working for NASA or something like that, where you're always going to be like under a business person, under the manager, under the salesperson, rather than making real decisions about how the product is being distributed or the service or whatever. I think it's a blessing not, you know, being on the engineering side and understanding business is a huge advantage than just being strictly business and knowing nothing about engineering. Eventually, you will understand the business side better, and then you will still appreciate the engineering side. At the end of the day, the business will always draw you more than the engineering side. Not because that's where the money is, but because it's a decision maker. It's driving the processes and, processes and all of that. And it's a potential, it's a retirement plan because if you really know how a product is being made, how a problem is being solved, how to build a sophisticated masterpiece, and you also understand the business decisions, you have access to that market, you have access, you understand how to draw up a structure to draw in investors or even get crowdfunding, then why are you in that company? It's just a question of time before you either setting up your own company or your own business that might be doing something ingenious 
that that company hasn't accepted or bought into the idea because of its own bureaucracy and internal culture and wanting to just keep up with, you know, meeting production targets and, you know, coming up with the model, you know, their own style of corporate style of doing things. And you now see, oh, well, here's the niche. Mm-hmm. And you try to sell it, you know, in the entrepreneurial session of the kind of no, no, we're not doing that. Sorry. Boom. Yeah. And then you build the cop- capacity. You could even be running like a startup on the side while working there. And later, you just get an angel investor, you know, or even the one above the angel investor who says, oh, I'm interested in this. This looks like it's game changing. Can we twitch this and twitch that and change this? And they say, yeah, well, if you get engineers to work on that, you work on it or get people to work on that. You know, college level engineers who just want to test their coding skills and all of that. You give them direction, you give them incentives, you give them, you know, um, some pr- um, shares in your company if, it's, if it succeeds. And they say, okay, yeah, fine. And boom, the investor say, okay, I'm giving you $10 million to see what it becomes of, or some might say $50 million. And before you know it, you're all set. So it's a comfortable balance from what are you going to get if you if you met Bill Gates now and you told him, wouldn't it be a smart idea to call up Microsoft phone as a layman? Is he going to think about it? Is he going to listen to you? No. But if um, this guy who is now driving uh, Microsoft, the, the chief executive of Microsoft, the current one, um, he had how many degrees from Harvard and all of that, but he's no more in the software engineering production side or coding side. He's more of business and shaping culture and, you know, just the talking, the cool stuff now. If he tells because the same thing you said, the only difference will be talking about it in technical terms. And he will say, oh, how that's a beautiful idea. And then he gets even more reward and promotion for that. So it's uh, the marketing side of it and the packaging side of it, the corporate side of it. You know, you may not have the qualification in terms of the recognition, not qualification, the, the recognition to talk about things you talk about, even though you have the right information, and that's what education does to you. So having an education in engineering, it's very important. It, it's, it's, I think with more people who are engineering savvy in leadership positions and government, having the correct balance of ethics, the world would be a better place mm. than the other way around. Yeah. Yeah, so b- studying the engineering side first and knowing something about the business side yeah. is a stronger overall profile yeah. than straight up knowing the business side and then trying to figure out engineering <laughs> slowly yeah. but surely if that's possible. <coughs> I believe it might be slower in terms of re- remuneration because market forces are not constant and very predictable. So someone who has just the strict business side could just come, spot an opportunity, exploit it, after three months, that's the end of the opportunity. But that was all the time he needed to, to hit the jackpot. Within that three months, he had $50 million. You, with all your engineering growth process, will become eventually successful, but you might just build a $3 million startup. So yeah. That's good enough, you know. But it's not like exploiting the niche. So at the end of the day, just be aware. Just be educated. Look at the resources you have. Look at the circle where you are, you're at. How small your circle is depends on the level of knowledge and how you could transform that knowledge into products that could goods and services that people are able to put dollar on and is going to define your material welfare. The bigger your circle, the bigger market base or influence you could like reach out to. Musicians have a high capacity for reaching out to the greatest number of audience 
because they have a great following. And the smartest musicians have also gone into business, like meeting established companies like Nike, Adidas, yeah. you know, and signing contracts with them and driving some of their brands. So it's a great thing. The fan base of these musicians want to identify with the kind of electronic gadgets or sports gadgets or meal plans they are um, superstars and idols, you know, yeah. uh, are into. Um, a fan base of 50 million following, just having a fraction of it patronize your product as a result of signing this deal with this successful musician or artist, you're driving a traffic of maybe 4 million buying this product. That is huge. That is huge. And then you can comfortably see this um, beautiful, popular artist signing these deals with telecommunication companies or advertisement deals and saying, okay, I just signed a 30 million contract with these guys to talk about this or be their brand ambassador and that and that and that. Mm. It's the following. It's always the following. So that is how you stand to even rake in more than a software engineer <laughs> and all yeah, that when, yeah. you, when you follow the side of talent. Mm -hmm. Very powerful. Yeah, I, th I think one thing that is uh, cool about engineering, though, still is the ability to uh, prototype stuff. So, like, you were mentioning Bill Gates and saying if you had a conversation with him, how seriously would he be able to take you if you don't have a, you know, a platform or you're not well-known or you don't have a Harvard degree? But what you could do is have, like, a prototype that demonstrates the essence of what you're trying to tell him and then... You could show them, okay, this is actually worth something. And I think that's kind of, I don't know how connected you are to the startup world, but uh, I've heard that that's kind of a part of the ethics of the startup world is that the, that's the whole idea is you have the little guy, but they show you something that is real and has potential. And, this, and that's the beginning of their idea. And then some big person says, okay, I want to see you finish this because now I see what you're getting at, you know? But you're right. I mean, as far as the market, it is better to have an understanding of how to move through the market because uh, there, there's so many variables with companies. Like, I'm just beginning to understand some of the variables that deal with, like, having lawyers for your company or having, like, public relations for a company where you can't just do anything you want. Otherwise, you're always going to be in court. You really have to have a dedicated team of people um, for instance, dealing with intellectual property or things like that, if you borrow something, if you reference something, how do you properly do that? You, you do it the wrong way, you know. I mean, you spoke about artists. This happens with artists. If they, if they uh, go about making a song in the wrong way and they don't properly get the rights to everything, then even though it does get a, a million follows, you have to take it down or it costs you more than, you know, you, you thought it would, and then it's not really a hit. So That's true. I think sampling is like that, where people like take pieces of beats. And then <laughs> sometimes I think I heard an artist say, yeah, my number one song had a sampled thing. So I like that song basically made no money because I ended up paying all of that money to the person who had the original sample or something along those lines. But wow. Yeah, it's weird. I, the business versus the engineering side where... Where does everyone draw the line? I think I generally agree with you, though. Engineering first, then business. Some of the decisions you've been making as a businessman are, well, there are people who just have a commonsensical, practical approach to life. 
they really don't need to understand the laws of physics and chemistry and biology to be successful in business or some other fields. They just have a practical knowing on how things work. That's a big steal. Apart from that, some of the skills you develop as a problem solver, scientist, a mathematician, or an engineer, in business, they're a little bit useless because science is built on facts and principles and true data. Business, it's a guessing game, fluctuate, mood, emotions, um, customers' interest, you know, how to drive customers' interest, you know. Customer might not be interested in a service, how to, like, make them interested. Product, promotion, marketing, ads, some of it. It's a little bit um, scientific, but also has a lot of variables and how to play with those variables, so it's tricky. But understanding that these things are there and they exist is also important. Understanding how the concept of money and economics come about is also important. Now the world is in, it's in, I would say, an uneven standard. There is an uneven notion of money. The notion of money is not practical. The mo- notion of money does not equate value. What's the, yeah, what's the next step for that? What do you think is the no, next no, 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 money? No, no, do no, we no, even no. need money? No, 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 no. The global leaders of the world, either political or business or military or information, the power brokers of the world, the elites, will never want a world that will solve that problem. Because when you solve that problem, you take away the control. And without Not necessarily. A lot of control, yes. Super, super necessarily, control. super necessarily, super necessarily. Once, just think about a world where you have an app or a system where you could vote at any time and the popular vote is being registered, you know, and the way forward, there is full democracy in everything. Like you could vote in the president now and you realize you made a mistake and there's a process within six months to recall that president and not four years. What does that say to business, to industry, to military, to spend, to everything? So now, many people don't vote because the whole thing about voting is you just make, an, you just make a stupid emotional mistake in an exam and you're stuck with it for 10 years or four years or six years, depending on the system. You know, and these people can easily play around themselves. They sit eye to eye. They are always in Capitol Hill together on the opposite sides. They're not in Capitol Hill on the street and all of that. So the whole dynamic of this game is played into a structure that we want to give people the idea that they're contributing to the system when in reality an electoral college or a few block of people could overrun the majority. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so... Well, the best thing you could do in a democracy is still get people thinking that, yeah, it's the thing about the majority, but you have to be that majority in a way they don't understand you're the majority. So they can say, oh, yeah, it's our majority vote that got us in the power, but when in reality it's a minority, that was that majority that they thought it was them, you know, that got them into all of that. So who knows? You as a sophisticated mathematician cannot even tell how all this data was it's been assembled from voting and all of that, and how to what extent is accurate, much less a lawyer president. What does he know? Look at how many months, if not years, it's taking the intelligence community to have these scientists and experts, you know, to break up the facts and see if the data is actually correct and numbers and all that. And 
It's just so crazy. So the confusion is a blessing for the elites and not too much of a blessing for the people who need it more. The confusion, yeah. you know. So you need that confusion on a it's a political it's a political scoring point, you know, to have confusion, you know, among the population. That means they want change, they want something that you could sell your political product. But we're talking about money. I think America is a world power today because it came up with a beautiful value of money. Before night was a gold standard. When it was a gold standard, America was not a world power. It was a resource-based system. They moved the world from a resource-based system to an economic-based system. A trust-based system, arguably. That's a trust-based system. Yeah. You, could, you could say or that argument. Confidence-based. Confidence-based yeah. system. But confidence in what? Yeah, you have to. That you have to make money. I th that rich people are going to make more money. I think that's the only Be thing that before we're it's not even about money because when there was a gold standard, there was also money. Don't get it wrong. Countries had their currencies, but they were still operating the gold standard. All these currencies we are pegged towards gold. Gold was the unifying decider, but because the amount of gold in the world. It's so, 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 so small that you cannot keep making the argument between gold and currencies and resources, you know, and talk about global trade, you know, pull the big strings you need to pull across countries and all of that because population is expanding. And now you're talking about trust and confidence. So which country is going to give up their own currencies or accept these other countries' currencies? And who are the ones who make the money? And what's the standard of making the money? Money is just paper, flint at the end of the day. But the same cost of producing this paper, you decide that, okay, this one is $100. And the same paper, another one is just less than a dollar. How do people come to that? How it's, it's, it's the demand, probably. It's not really the demand. Now, there is an intellectual work that has gone before the demand. The demand is there because someone has created that value. The demand is there because I will just give you the history and narrate the history of what happened, you know. The economic hitmen in the States are the smartest people in the world. They're smarter than military generals and anything you could think of. You could call them capitals or whatever. They were able to benchmark and see where the world would go, the crisis that the gold standard will not solve. It's going to be powerful, but then it, it would restrict power to those countries that have the highest resource, gold resources, because they could decide to change the exchange rate and say, no, the value of our currency is this, and we'll peg it to gold or to our resources. It could be any resources that is in great demand in the world. You could peg your currency to crude oil. If you're a crude oil-based nation and you crude oil is in great demand in the world, boom, the elites will resist you if they're not controlling your government or the process of the resources and all of that. So they knew they were not controlling all of these all over the world. And they said, well, we have to change this. And now, you need a war. You need a war to get the leaders of the world into a table. And so the world, the world, world was, as bad as it was, was a blessing. We just needed a war, you know, to keep populations in a direction. Yeah. So when it came on board, you know, at the end of the war, America didn't play so much roles, but, you know, Second World War, they deposed that the ones who thought about the victory and all of that. <laughs> you know, and they were lending out paper money, 
the dollar in huge demand to all these countries affected by the war. Now they've taken away the gold. Um, you had that Hitler's vault of treasuries and his precious stones, you know, that the, the goods and the resources that, you know, oil and finance the Second World War is still nowhere to be found. You think that that's true? Of course, it's always been found from the get-go. But if we say it's found, then someone will say, okay, let's share the money. What do we use with the money? So if you're the one controlling, if you're the organization people don't know, that is controlling what people call money, that decides to pr produce paper and ascribe a value to it. And in all the countries of the world, you're just doing that. That just, apart from it being a medium of exchange, it's a principle of control. Yeah. Do you know that the CBN in most countries don't produce the money-making machines and the chemicals that print their own currency? Mm. The technology for even making that money is still reserved for private entities. Like the same private entity that produces a dollar, it's not the U.S. government that even owns her own currency. They're the ones running the currency issues all over the world. And then they're connected to the political structure all over the world. And they, they're not connected to the military. They literally own the military. So this, you, whatever you see is always a shadow of what you don't really see. And what you see, why people are able to like know what they see and act with what they see and act on what they see, it helps this shadow structure to really control everybody because the shadow is supplying what people trust and have confidence in and they're pulling the strings, you know. Let me talk about the most moral organizations you could think of in the world. It could be the Justice Department or the religious non-profit organizations. Both still depend on money. Yeah. But they don't really understand the integral workings of money. They don't know who met and, you know, how it came about that you could just have America can decide Obama decided to print out how many trillion dollars you know to like reduce the US debt burden that mm. Bush got and all of that you know yeah we are able to fund our military industrial complex because um, the president could print out dollars and fund the military investment and the whole world is stuck to that because the American dollar is now the new standard global trade is in US dollars if China wants to sell her products to Japan, they have to translate it into the US dollar and then undertake that trade. But now China became a rising power after manipulating currency for so long. They started meeting some countries and saying, okay, we're going, we're going to do this deal with you with your currency directly. We don't need to do the US dollar um, universal currency and then effect the trade. And most countries both in Africa and Europe and, you know, Asia, are having this understanding with China. That's why it's giving, you know, the elites here a huge, huge, huge problem. And China is talking less. Their strategy is they know what they want, China first. So even though their presence in global, in global uh, politics is China first. So the, the, the world will be Chinese slave at the end of the day. That's the, the worst thing to say or the worst way to put it, but that's it for real. You know, so they're gonna. That's that's what's gonna happen. You know. Where do you so as far as the Chinese slaves? Do you think that um, like let's say that let's say that there was someone who said I, in my life I want to do A, B, and C, and then they do A, B, and C freely. But there was a second party that said I'm gonna force them to do A, B, and C, but 
I'm just gonna the way that I'm gonna do it is I'm just gonna let them do whatever they want, but really I want them to do A, B, and C. It's tricky. It has are to. Are they still a slave, basically? Well, a slave is only a slave, mostly because they can't help their situation. No, cheaply because they can't help their situation, but mostly because they they don't even know they are slaves. Yeah. So in your own situation, it will be mostly because they don't even know they are slaves, or they don't know how to escape the rot. Even with America, there is a corporate rot here. We, we really don't know how to escape. It's so complex for us. There's more than we do know, you know. Now there is digital currency because with population, the speed of trade, we can't move cash as fast as we could move electronics and communications. So when the elite saw the breakthrough in communication and internet and all of that, wow, let's take away flint money and bring out digital currency. But then there's a danger of the digital currency. The true value of digital currency is blockchain technology. But with blockchain technology, you're introducing democracy into the money transaction process. And that's taking away the power of governments and elites and central banks. That's a huge, huge problem. So there's a complex debate in all of this. At the end of the day, look at what look at the principle of the elites. Don't make decisions for the people. Standardize options. Sell options to the masses. And then you control them. So, how do I control a diverse population in the answer? I'll tell you, here's a free school. You know, we can't tell you what courses to choose, what courses not to choose. But here we have 20 courses that are the standard, you know. Do any of them within this time, we'll give you a degree. Whatever you do here, I'm still holding the keys because I'm controlling the options you have. Yeah. You have to be in the answer. You have to take one of these. But you are making the choices. Mm -hmm. So it's a higher level of game, but it's still <laughs> clearly a game. Well, that's why that's why it's an interesting question because there are constraints in our lives that have that we don't have any control over. Like, let's say I said, okay, I'm going to control the entire human population. Okay, what are you going to do? I'm going to guarantee that every human that's born after I say this sentence is going to be less than 15 feet tall. And then you say, wait a minute, that's they're already less than 15 feet tall. So what's the difference? Right, in that sense, it's not truly control because what would have happened? You have to restrict the options. Basically, if you're if you're giving someone options, but everything that they otherwise would have chosen fits within those options, I would say that's a situation where it's not control. But if you're taking away some options yeah. right, that they otherwise would have chosen, then um, then yeah, in that sense, yeah, you're you're controlled. That's that slave argument makes more sense to me. The reason why it's control is because even when you sell these options like that, you want to get a slave to do what you want them to do. But people are more effective when they do what they want to do. So what if they're the same thing? Then is it a slave? That's how they use They have different tools. So let's say you give people 10 options and then you have a population of 1,000 people and 900 of them choose just one option. And then you have all the aspect of, you know, the big plan, the bigger picture you need people in, but you can't find people because people are not as, uh, as interested. And that's how the laws of demand kick in, the supply of currency kick in, and then there are career options, you know, 
that are highly remunerated and the demand is so high adds a win factor to get people in those directions. And then you see people who are good in these other areas that they want to do this. They say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to be able to feed my family. And I kind of love this, but it's not the best thing I'd rather do. Yeah. So it's no, it's no more so much about chasing your passion, but bringing passion into what you do. And now, yeah, I'm going to get a nursing degree. I'm changing the world. I'm caring for people. And I'm making a whole lot of money. Why not? Mm-hmm. You know, that may be a sociology major or a psychology course, and it's really hard getting a job even with a master's degree. Yeah. So people are trying to make this. But at the end of the day, you're keeping the control. Because even when nurses graduate with their degrees and their work, they're going to pay taxes. Right. Yeah. You know, they're going to live in houses and pay rent. Still the government taking the taxes. Still the government controlling, you know, the um, the laws regarding real estate and some of that. They're still going to go to their place of work. You're controlling transportation. They're still going to use communication devices. You're legislating against, you know, the um, telecommunication providers and all of that. You know, they will still need security in the places of work and all of that. So it's always a loop. And the loop is not, it's never, there's never a time the loop will be in equilibrium. So... The laws of demand will create market ups and downs that will give people who have skills or who are able to acquire new skills the ability to like switch when it's not favorable. And very soon with the breakthrough in science and technology, it might not be so much as favorable that you know as sending ground troops for wars and all of that, you know. Nations will begin to cut down on some of that budget, you know, the level of warfare and all of that. It keeps changing. So there is a balance. Acquire some level of skill, hit the market, live a life you love because you live just once, do what you want to do, save up for the unknown, go back into trying new fields. You might soon be useless if you've not hit the jackpot already. Yeah. It is interesting to see how uh, these ideas of control and choice play out in different situations. Because uh, on one hand, you c- it's definitely possible to be wrong. But if you're right, sometimes it's hard to bring up the right evidence. So it can seem like you're, yeah, you can have a false negative or a false positive and it's yeah. hard, it's anybody's guess some of the time. I mean, it's hard to have an evidence-based discussion about anything simply because you not everyone's in the best position to collect that data. All right, we're gonna wrap things up. With the most important question in the, the universe. The most important really? question the in the life. universe. It's close to that. It's All right, you ready? Yeah. Brick or mortar? Mm-hmm. So listening just for a moment. I just want to see um, if I have more time. I just want to see um, the time of the event today. I signed up for... Um, well, you can make it a one-word answer. Yeah, brick or mortar? Yeah. I don't understand brick or mortar, like the literal brick and mortar or the figurative sense brick and mortar. Mortar. That's right. The Chef of X podcast. Thanks for your time. Mm, delicious. But how do you know that's right? <laughs>